Creative Babble. Previously on Pretend, we met Jack. Jack is a bounty hunter. I love it. It's what I do. I'm cleaning streets. They don't realize how many people are running out there, fugitives. They're just blending in with people, committing crimes to survive because they can't work regular jobs. They're out there. They're all over the place. They're like insects. And we go after them. But it turns out Jack was once himself a fugitive running from the law. You see, he was found guilty for a crime and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He lost his appeal and said that the district attorney was going to lock him up. He started telling everybody what he was going to do to me. He was going to bury me. I wasn't coming back with that crazy son of a bitch. No way. No way was I coming back face that guy. So I chose not to come back, and then I became fugitive status from Mississippi. Not federal yet. Jack started cooking meth in the Pennsylvania mountains. So if you went in a room and saw all that, you'd say, whoa, they're not baking cookies. He's now working for a crime family. And one of the bosses, Leo, got whacked. He was found dead in the trunk of his car. I think they killed him. Now, who killed him? I think uh, Ronnie Pierce and Drummy had him murdered. But this whole time, the FBI is hunting him down. I'm Judy Tyler, and I was an FBI agent from 1979 through 2010, and primarily worked violent drug gang cases in Philadelphia. And one of my first cases involved Jack Conway, who uh, his true name is Jack Saltarelli. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. You know, a big part of your story now is chasing fugitives. You've been a fugitive, but like even as a kid, you know, you've been running. Right. Oh, I've been running all my life. I don't know if I ever really knew what it was I'm running from. I know today, but uh, I've been running all my life. I've also been living a lie. Because of what I've done, I've had to live a lot of lies since. As a kid, Jack's stepfather would beat him with closed fist. After so many beatings, I remember one time he laid me across, to, we had these little linoleum kitchen chairs, made me strip down, and he beat me with his belt 
from my shoulders to the bottom of my legs. He couldn't aim straight, he was drunk. And he beat mad welts, I couldn't move. I couldn't put clothes on. I looked like raw bacon. So um, my mother lost all her teeth. He broke almost every bone in her face over, over beatings. She had bruises and came back. I remember seeing her for the first time with false teeth. She didn't look like the same person. Uh, he'd come in drunk. They'd start fighting. I still hear it in my head now, the dishes flying and break. always broke the dishes. Jack would hide in his room, praying that his stepfather wasn't coming for him next. It's just, I, I still hear them breaking, the cabinet turned over. I, I would be in the bedroom in a knot, knowing he's coming for me. I started running away from home at eight years old. But I ran away. I wouldn't stay there. I would sleep in cars, empty buildings. So yeah, he did all that to her and his drunken stupors, but she stayed with him. That was why I was running away. From the age of eight to 12, Jack was in and out of youth detention centers. And when he wasn't locked up, he was robbing the neighborhood milkman. Well, I had him terrorized in the neighborhood. It was kind of funny. <laughs> I feel bad now because I wonder how many of them had to go back and take it out of their, their own pay. But, uh, I, I I used to stalk him, and I wouldn't get the same guy all the time. Maybe to what the milkman? Yeah, milkman, breadman, but mostly the milkman. And the reason why is they go around early in the morning. They would deliver to the doorsteps. People were still in bed. Later in the afternoon, they come back around, and start to collect. The people are up. They'd park and they'd start down one side of the street because they're not carrying anything. It's just collections. Crossover, come back up. So I'd wait till I'd get down a little ways. I'd look around. I'd look and I'd get in the truck be down low and I'd find it. I would find a big canvas bag or something. Even in time they began to hide it, I was still fine. So I so many places you could put it in there. So that's how I was surviving the street like that. Rather than go home and live a normal life. I was blowing it. I, I don't even know why I was doing it. I guess because it was easy to do. Then it was burglary. When you're sleeping in buildings, you start to learn how to unlock. Things were easy to unlock in a day. A hell, a screwdriver, a butter knife, a pen knife. You're not just seeking shelter. You're, you're taking money. Jack said he never blamed his stepfather for any of his crimes. I never blamed him. Uh, I, I knew I was doing right. I mean, I knew I was breaking the law later on in life. But I'd gotten there by traveling the circles with criminals. All I knew was institutions. For instance, by the time I was 12, I ran away so many times. I went in front of Judge Sidney Hoffman, and he sent me to the Catholic Protectory. A protectory is a Roman Catholic shelter for abandoned or neglected kids. Back then, it was 1958. It was run by Franciscan monks. They were the cruelest, meanest people. They're cruel, they're sadists. They beat us with ball bats. Every day was pain and religion, pain and religion. I did that for one year. When I come out of there at 13, I was one hard ass. I was hard. Picture a ball bat shaved both round ends off, you got an inch, inch and a half in the center. You got the whole length of the ball bat and they drill holes, then they tape it. And they used to like to get you when you're coming out of shower and you're wet. And the slightest little thing like talking in line, snickering, anything. If he can't get you then and deal with you, he gets you later. He'd pull that book out. And they're the people he wrote in there during the week. The following 
people stay. If your name's on it, you get in that line. You have, there's no case. You're in there, get in the line and shut up. They had all kinds of punishments, but this one, the bendo parties, there was no defense. That first one was gonna bust your butt. You, you're gonna feel it to your bone, because he's bringing it. Brother Gabriel was about six foot three, long arms. And I mean, you could hear that thing whistle. And he was brutal. You didn't want to move. You wanted it on your cheeks. You didn't want to twitch or get it on your legs or on your lower back. So you learn what we call sounding off, just taking it. You put your hands on your knees and you wait. When you get that one or two, then you run around and you get back in line. Eventually, 12-year-old Jack was released from the Catholic protectory and was sent to Glen Mills School. Glen Mills is a 200-year-old school for delinquent boys. It's described as the country's most radical answer yet to juvenile crime. I started to run away from there. That long and short of it, I ended up in front of Judge Sidney Hoffman again. And he says, you are incorrigible. You won't stay put. And he sent me to Camp Hill, which is state prison at 15. State prison. And that's where I went. His entire childhood, he's been running away. But he's a grown man. And now, he's running away from the federal government. <laughs> That's what makes this next part so hard to believe. So, this is the part of the story that I can't get my head around, because you're a fugitive. I mean, for right. the state of Mississippi. Right. Yeah. But you take on this... And I'm a drug dealer. Let's face and it. a drug I'm dealer. Selling drugs, so. When Jack wasn't pushing meth, he would work as part of a search and rescue team. We used to go to schools and do demonstrations with the dogs. Let a little kid take their shoe off, go hide it somewhere, come back, sit with the class. Sent the dog on the other shoe, and ban the dog would go and find that shoe. They loved that stuff. We, that's all we ever did. I loved it in between. He would work alongside state and local authorities looking for missing kids. I mean, why in the world would you decide to take up such a high-profile search and rescue job? I, I don't think I was always really truly bad. I always liked that kind of work. I always liked coming to the rescue. We used to go out with missing kids and find kids. That was a wonderful feeling. You, you worked on some pretty high profile yeah. cases. Right? Yeah, I certainly did. I did float for occasionally back and forth to Atlanta. I was working on the Wayne Williams case, all the missing children. Wayne Williams is a serial killer who is believed to have killed more than two dozen children and adults in the Atlanta area. At the time when I left there, it was like 28. It's, it was a couple adults, but they, they were saying 28 murdered and missing children. But what we were actually doing, we were trying to find people, but we were really eliminating grids. We were looking for cadavers. We worked with GBI. If you look at my pictures, that's a Georgia Bureau of Investigation we worked with. That's who we teamed up with. They were straight as an arrow. They were fantastic. But you were like on TV. I know. I was on every damn day. We had to run and hide from them people. But aren't you afraid that like... I, I didn't think about that. I wasn't a fugitive when I was doing that. Oh, you weren't? I mean, I was, but I, in my mind, I was, I was a good guy. I'm trying to find either the murderer or these, a missing child. You know, the FBI is watching the national news and there you are. Well, that's, that's right, and um, I didn't think about it that way. Um, I should have because my son was back in Philly with his little buddies, school buddies, sitting on the floor in front of TV watching me. I was on TV a lot. 
I asked FBI agent Judy Tyler about this. So, yeah, we had received informant information that Jack was working for um, a search and rescue dog operation based out of Philadelphia that had gone down to Atlanta to help with the search for the um, Wayne Williams when uh, I think at the time they didn't know it was Wayne Williams, but whoever was killing the um, young African-American males and dumping them off of bridges down in Atlanta. and I. I so I knew he was part of that search and rescue as a volunteer. So I had uh, sent a request down to our headquarters. Like, or did we hire a, a known fugitive? So the FBI sent someone down to Atlanta to investigate and find Jack. So I'm in my room, laying. The doors are open. I'm laying on the floor and I'm doing uh, tricep extensions with weights and two guys walk in. I get, I know now one must have been a fed and one was a detective. And they told me, just lay there. They looked over at my weapon, they pointed, said, uh, understand you're a fuser from Mississippi. Well, I had my new idea. I said, a fuser from Mississippi? Well, damn, Mississippi, I'm from Philadelphia. You have any idea? Idea? I said, right up there. My wallet was up, ready to open up, went through it, called it in. They were looking for Jack Conway, not Jack Saltarelli. Came back negative. Well, we're sorry. We just heard something about a canine guy. <laughs> I said, well, there's a lot of canine guys running around here, all kind of volunteers. I said, I'm from Philadelphia. When I heard that damn elevator shut, <laughs> I was down that exit, man. My car was parked out back anyway. I took what I could carry in clothes. I was gone. When Jack wasn't doing search and rescue, he would return to the Pennsylvania mountains to cook meth. In the previous episode, we learned that one of the head bosses, Leo, was murdered. They found him dead inside his wife's car with a bullet in his head. You would think that this would spark some sort of turf war or something, but there was no real retaliation. Jack found it strange that Leo, one of the four bosses, got whacked and the other three bosses weren't doing anything about it. Whenever Jack would ask about Leo's murder, Ronnie, one of the head guys in the family, would brush it off as if it were a drug deal gone bad. When I used to bring it up at the lab to Ronnie and them, well, man, come on, you. <laughs> if you think you know who did it, because they were claiming some Muslim got out of prison, kidnapped him, made him show him how to make it, and they killed him. I said, there should be some payback. He's one of us. What are you going to do about it? Oh, you need to stop. Stop bringing it up. And he used to get defensive. You got to stop. You know, we don't, just just leave it alone. And One of the four main guys gets whacked. He's dead in his wife's trunk. I mean, you, you want some payback. And they're telling you, like Ronnie's telling you, no, 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 don't Let's worry. Just he's just trying... Yeah, he's just trying to brush it on. So so now what are you thinking? I'm, I'm knowing that they did it. Ronnie didn't like Jack asking all these questions. Things were heating up between them. So he's bitching about all the heat they got from the feds because of me. One day, back in the mountain meth lab, Jack got the feeling that something was up. Things were just not adding up. I saw the writer on the wall. I'm up in the lab and a big old rider rental truck pulls up. Dennis DeLuca, ex-cop, one of our workers, pulls up. Uh, 
come on, you need a Bojack, you need to help me load all the equipment. I said, what's going on? Ronnie instructed everyone to move the meth lab equipment into a rental truck. We're moving all the lab stuff out and the trash, which I thought was weird. But what's, he said, well, well, this guy's an electrician. He's gonna look around and see why we're blowing fuses. I'm thinking, well, we got that much of a problem, so. And why would you have to move? I mean, is that typical to move a whole meth lab out? Jack says no. Something's not right. He thinks this is a hit job. He's vicious. Ronnie's not a fighter. We don't go out, get a chainsaw, and come back in the bar and cut you in half. So he, he was kind of psychotic, right? He's psychotic. Ronnie wants you to pull your van back along the brush line. Because if it's not, he's not coming up. Well, then I'm thinking, okay, if you whack me, you carry my body out. If anybody goes down the bottom of the road, they won't see it. Put me in my van. One drives my van back to the city and parks me on some street. The other picks him up in the other car. And I'm thinking all this. Your life goes before you because I know what it is. Jack prepared for the worst case scenario. Ronnie knew Jack carried two weapons at all times. So Jack got a third gun and concealed it. And it was the summer, but I put a flannel shirt on. I just picked up a third firearm that week. So I put my 357 in my belt. I cover it. The other two are unloaded. He only knew me for two. He wasn't sure what they were. So now they come out. We're at the kitchen table. His guy, his so-called electrician, is standing to my left. It's about a five-foot kitchen table. Ronnie's at the other end. So the one guy on my left, I figure, okay, he's close enough to try to wrap his arms around me. Ronnie can come around and put it right behind my left ear and do it. So Ronnie says, and I knew then, he says, Bojack, he said, he's a gun lover. Show him them two guns you got. I said, well, they're in the case there that was on the table. They pulled them out, they weren't loaded. They're both, each one's got one, they're looking at them. Now he's thinking they got my weapons. And everything going through my mind at the time, they say everything just flashes. I've already told myself, if I have to kill them, it's a solid rock, I can't bury them here. I'm gonna have to put them in their car, leave my van, drive them back to the city and find transportation back. Let them be found somewhere and I'll send a message. And all of a sudden, he just went from being friendly to like, he looked like he was all business. He had something he had to do. And that's when I pulled my 357 out. I said, but this never leaves me. All of a sudden, the tension in the room hit a fever pitch. He was like, oh, when'd you get that? And just like that, it was over. Ronnie and his goon left. So they failed to take out Jack this time. But he knew it was only a matter of time for them to return. To make matters worse, Jack's wife stopped visiting him. My own wife, I was hearing all the stories about her carrying on on me. Jack knew that she was cheating on him. Their marriage was basically falling apart, and he felt like his son was being neglected. So my biggest concern at that time was my son. I I lived for my son. She's out drunk. She was an alcoholic. God knows who she's coming home with. The stories were terrible. She had stopped coming. She was too interested in partying. But I would see my son. Uh, so I knew that that was a done deal. I was divorcing her if I had ever had a chance to change my life with it. 
this was no way to raise a family. Everything in your, in your life is kind of falling apart, right? Yeah. You're, you're a fugitive not only in Mississippi, you're a fugitive at a federal level too. Right. You, you, one of the four guys that you're working with wants you killed, and then you find out your, your wife is cheating on you. Well, I, mean, I was scared that all along. I was really concerned about my son. Where does he go from here? It seems like he's just out of options. I was desperate. I kept thinking about who's going to take care of my child. He's just a young baby. I've muffed that up. I've ruined that. So I got them wanting to kill me. I know there's going to be another time I'm going to have to kill them. It's, it's kill or be killed. It's not going to stop. Jack needs to change the game. I said, well, you know what? I don't owe her shit. I don't owe them shit. And I'm going to make the call. And I rode up and down Cotman Avenue in Philly. Looking at pay phones, I had a pocket full of quarters. Jack made a call that turned everything upside down. And I called it, and it was Judy's house. And that was the beginning of, of working something out. Jack picks up the phone and calls FBI agent Judy Tyler. When he called and said who he was, I was delighted that he had uh, reached out to me because I, I knew he... Uh, didn't want to go back to Mississippi and do all that time. And knowing that he was involved with this meth case, I thought there was a possibility that maybe he could work with us and take that down and get credit for that down with the district attorney in Mississippi if they would agree to that. And so when I talked to him, I told him, you might not have to go do 20 years down in Mississippi if we work together. And it was up to him if he was willing to give it a shot. Jack agrees to be an informant. I had the U.S. Marshals come in and talk to him about witness protection program. If he wanted to avail himself, I wanted him to know what those options were because there are two types of witness protection, one in prison while you do your time and one outside of prison uh, once you've done your time. Funny story, when Jack finally met Agent Judy Tyler... He confessed that he was relieved that he was no longer running from the law. The whole time he was a fugitive, he says he was always looking over his shoulder. And uh, I remember him telling me it had gotten to the point where he, he knew I was a blonde female, but didn't know what I looked like. And every time he was eating in a restaurant, every blonde, he would look and think, is that her? And it was just hard being a fugitive, always wondering, is that is this the day, you know? So now you're, you've contacted the FBI and told them you could offer them a lab. What's the plan? Well, that, the plan was we had to wait for them to come back with the equipment. By them, Jack means Ronnie and crew. He needs to do one last cook with them to set up the sting. And while we were waiting, we were getting all the other stuff done. I had to come to Mississippi to get that bond fixed. I had to come back legal. So I came down to Mississippi, got a new bond, got everything squared away so I'm legal to go back. I'm not a fugitive anymore. The judge, everybody worked it out. Jack takes Agent Judy Tyler and Clyde Whitson to the Mountain Meth Lab. The equipment was back, and from the looks of it, someone already had made a cook and left a big mess behind. I said, let me go in and show you something. I came back. They, they didn't wash none. They left it for me. So 
that that was my question while reading this. Wouldn't that be enough to get them? I mean, why go through the trouble of doing a cook? You know, one last cook. Like, what if yeah, if like I you said you they had like all the ingredients and if you add them all together? No, you got to know when to go in. You got somebody in there. If you want to prove uh, manufacturing, you want it from start to finish. If you go in and they're all done, I just got a pound on the table. You got possession. You want to go in while they got a batch cooking, and there's a finished product on the table, and that's how we planned it. So the FBI waits until they ask Jack to do a new cook. It's the day of the cook, and Jack and the FBI are ready to take down the lab. This this whole time, are you wired or? Yeah, I had a transmitter on me that a tape was picking up. And uh, every three hours, I'd go out and change the battery. It was like a camera battery. It was in a sleeve in my back, had an antenna. It picked up everything. Well, he had a transmitter on, so he could talk to us through his transmitter, but he had to change the battery every three hours. So it was difficult. We, we didn't have the same kind of technology that's available today. And occasionally he'd get out, he'd be able to get out and go to a payphone and call. So those phone calls and communication through the transmitter were critical for us. And if his battery died, we're in the dark. The agents are listening in on everything from a nearby hotel. And the SWAT team is on standby. Oh, were you ever nervous that, were you nervous that like maybe somebody no, would? No, no, I wasn't afraid of these people. They'd be more afraid of me. There's a lot at stake here. This is a meth lab we're talking about. I mean, you can't just stop the cook halfway. Jack needs to wait and give them a clear signal when the cook is finished. Otherwise, things could go boom. So now we know we're going to do the cook. I let them know. And uh, we're figuring on 20 hours. We're figuring from the time it cooks. The first cook went bad, so they had to start all over again. It wouldn't be for another 20 hours before the feds come and make their move. They, they actually went on foot across the backside of the mountain because this uh, house was on the top of a mountain, basically, with a long driveway leading up to it. And if you drove up, they'd hear and see you coming. And then we had a SWAT team that had to come over the back of the mountain to uh, surround the house uh, for the takedown. So, um, and the takedown couldn't take place until Jack gave the okay that the, you know, the meth is actually made and in progress now. And that took a long time. I went out in the garage that I, we got a finished product on the table and a batch working. So something like that, similar. And uh, I knew it was gonna be any minute. So I told myself, I'm going back in. I'm gonna stand in the door of the cook room to block anybody from trying to run and spill it over. I will have white painter pants on and a blue jacket. So the SWAT team came on the backside of the house um, through the snow and then surrounded the house to go in. It was only seconds later I heard FBI. But what do you do now, man? I mean, because, like, where's Mike? Where's all these guys? I mean, are, do they know you're involved? or? Well, no, they don't know yet. Well, I didn't get up there till the scene was secured by for evidence uh, processing by um, the chemists and DEA and we got the people out of there right away uh, I think once they went in and, and got 
them. I took custody of Jack because we had other work to do beyond the actual processing of the scene. Jack's job isn't finished. Now he has to call the bosses and tell them what went down. And hopefully in the process, get them to implicate themselves on tape. So there was a team that did the evidence recovery and they took care of that while we took Jack and Jack had recorded calls to make to people. And then he took down a couple of other people um, following the arrests at the lab. So I called Drummy and I tell John, I said, John, I play it up. I say, go to, get off your house phone, go to a phone somewhere and call me back at this number. We got problems. Well, he leaves the house and he calls me. He's calling me at the hotel. They got it wired. What happened? What's going on? I said, the, the labs have been raided. Uh, FBI. He's going, what? what? Who all was there? I'm naming all the names. So he's making sure who all was there. I said, you might want to let Ronnie know. And I'm starting naming names and this, that, and the other. And just, you don't know if they're coming, looking for you, what's, what's going on. And I'm getting, he's admitting all kind of shit. He's in deep. I got him good. So he's implicating everybody. Did he ever ask you, like, weren't you in there? Like, how do you know? I told him I went to pick up money. And when I came back, thank God I wasn't up. I said, said, he said, how do you know the feds? I said, they had that blue jacket. So I went to the FBI. I said, they kept moving traffic, telling us to keep moving, keep moving. I said, I was scared shitless. The FBI has everything they need. Receipts for the equipment, their signatures, the product from start to finish. This case was solid. I think it was eight or nine uh, people were arrested that day. We had all the cooks. Then Jack had a couple of other uh, deliveries to make, two other ones. And then the three guys down in Philadelphia were picked up afterwards. I asked Jack if Ronnie Pierce and the other bosses ever found out he ratted on them. The answer is yes. Did you ever find out? I mean, did they ever get out of prison? No, no, they're out, but they did some time. But I don't think they did real hard time. They had the best lawyers that Philadelphia had to offer. And they, I mean, do you ever worry let bygones be bygones? Well, you know, while I was down here, I got a call one day that Frank DeBeard gave him my address. The feds warned Jack that he may be in trouble. I get a call to go down to the federal building. They told me again that there's a contract on me. They know where I live in Mississippi. The, the, the marshals already scooped me up. If I went and I told them, forget about it. They want to come, let them come. Let them bring it. Fed's got ears everywhere. They know what's going on. There's, there's, there's not much they don't know. And uh, they warned me. They have to warn you. I turned down the marshal service. I could have went into a marshal service any time and let them take care of me the rest of my life. I wouldn't even have to worry about a job. But I don't run from these creeps. I'm not afraid of them. They want to bring it on. I'll just do the best I can. I've been dealing with them all my life. I have no fear. I have no fear. I'm a, a man dies one death. A coward dies many. I have no fear. You know, they want to bring it on. They can bring it on. They know who I am. They know how I am. They better not make a mistake. So you could have stopped there, right? But your relationship with the FBI continued. Yeah, I... Uh, uh, we we were pretty good friends, and uh, so what we did is they had a party for me, a pool party, and they got a sign up on one of my pictures that's "Goodbye Jack," and then right beside got a sign uh, "Welcome Back Jack." It was while we were there that they decided to ask me Bob Orwell, who was the head of the T 
task force, the prosecutor, asked me to stay and teach him guys a few things. So I said, yeah, sure. I had left it, absolutely. So I took on that assignment of uh, kind of like an instructor in a way. I did up staying, working with them on uh, going to the club, teaching them how to act, how to buy, the lingo, because a lot of them were just straight up detectives. So um, I ended up with a time served. Time served, no probation, no tie-in with the courts. I'm not on paper, I'm a free man. John Saltarelli is a free man. And they ruined that. I wish this story would end here, because if it did, it would be a happy ending. But unfortunately, Jack's troubles aren't over. Let's kind of sum things up. You were a fugitive in Mississippi. You got that removed. You um, were a federal fugitive. You cooperated and you got that cleared. But now you're in trouble with the law again. I won't get into all the details because honestly, there's no way for me to prove any of this. It's Jack's word against the FBI. Jack claims he was framed by the FBI. He was busted by the Scranton FBI office for carrying around lab equipment. This was equipment that Jack says he was using while working with the Philadelphia FBI division. I came back with uh, my good name. I, I could have been a whole fresh start, short of a fingerprint. I could have been just a, a good citizen doing my thing, but now I've got a felony on that name and it shouldn't be there. And I thought at the time when we worked this information out, it was going to be a misdemeanor. They didn't catch me with no drugs. They caught me with kitchen appliances. I could afford that. I could have proved at that time that I was recruited, but I believed in them. I thought it was some kind of test. This stuff goes on. If you're into government intrigue, it goes on. So I thought this was a test to see if I could hold up. And I didn't fold. So when I went to uh, Maxwell Air Force Base, a federal prison over there, I was so upset with a six-month sentence. It was a three-year three that reduced to six months and a fine and probation. I was so upset, I wrote the judge. I told him, Judge, Your Honor, you know this is, this is really funky. And they returned by terminating my sentence. So I'm sure they knew something was, something was uh, not right. Here's how Agent Judy Tyler remembers it. I got informant information. Jack was cooking again. And um, it was up in the Scranton area. And um, But he wasn't cooking as part of another operation, right? Nope, it was, nope, it was on his own. And so he got arrested. They took him in, and uh, Jack was very sheepish about that. And there was, like, nothing you can do after that. All right, you've already worked and cooperated, and now you went back and did it. You got to go do the time at this point, which he did. But it was it was such a disappointment because he had come so far, and he hadn't he hadn't found a way to make a legitimate living yet. And that came later. In the end, Jack eventually stopped running. He devoted the rest of his life to undoing the damage he's done. And he's doing it the only way he knows, by catching fugitives. And, you know, it's kind of ironic what he does for a living now, right? Very ironic. And for the longest time, I couldn't believe that he could do that as a convicted felon. But they they had hearings on it, and he never... 
he always used non-lethal um, force. And But I'm sure when he goes in to make an arrest, he has armed law enforcement with him. And uh, I remember uh, my son-in-law said to my daughter once, how does your dad find these people? She said, well, he was a fugitive for 19 months. <laughs> he knows how they think, you know. In order to catch one, you got to, wow. That's, that's, that's pretty much true. I mean, while we're on the topic, why why tell your story? I mean, you're. it seems like all of this is kind of behind you. Well, I have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. I've given Phony back. It's all like my good friend, the judge, said it's all about redemption. You know, I remember a long time ago, Mayor, uh, Mayor Koch had said that a man should be able to go 10 years without a hint of, you know, some of us get slick and hide without a hint of a problem. He should be forgiven. I can't even vote today in Mississippi. I'm not allowed to vote. And I've been doing good stuff for 30 some years. I cannot vote. I look back now, it wasn't a life. It wasn't a life. There were wasted years I'll never get back. But would I change them? No, because they made me the man I am today. That's what my structure is. I'm loyal, I'm dependable, I'm a hard worker, I'm a good citizen. I wish I could vote like I'm entitled to, but I've been spending the last 30 plus years giving back. And if that's not good enough, I don't know what else I can do. Here's Agent Judy Tyler again. I'm proud of the way he finally turned his life around and uh, and, and his son uh, ended up going into law enforcement, which is pretty neat. But no, I've given enough years back now and uh, it's about redemption. You know, at some point, I'm just trying to earn my wings to get to heaven. Every time I do a good act, I feel that lump on my back growing. That's I'm just trying to, trying to do the right thing and uh, leave something decent behind. So that's it for my series on fugitives. I might revisit this topic in the future, but for now, it's time to switch gears. My next series is on psychics and their involvement in covert CIA experiments like this one. Stanford Research Institute has been conducting an experimental program in the field of psychoenergetic effects. We do not seek only to add to a catalog of interesting events. Rather, the purpose is to apply objective scientific analysis in the study of these reported phenomena to determine what This is Uri Geller, one of the self-proclaimed psychics who took part in the secret CIA study. What did you suspect at the time that they wanted to do with your abilities? They wanted to see if my mind can trigger a nuclear bomb. Could you, like, 
trigger a nuclear bomb with your mind? Um, I, I, I don't want to go there. And if you want to listen early, join Patreon. I will be posting those episodes there first. Speaking of Patreon, I want to thank all of you who support the show, like Catherine Williams. Your contributions made the Bounty Hunter series possible. Without your help, I could have never afforded the travel expenses required to get these stories. It's a win-win for everyone. You're funding the show, plus you get early access. If you'd like to chip in and listen to the next episode, it's available right now. Go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. Also, I know I've been talking about this for a while, but it's almost here. The True Crime Podcast Festival is taking place in Chicago on July 13th. It's going to be a blast. I've been asked to speak on a panel to discuss how I find my stories. It's going to be great. And if you're in the Chicago area, please, please visit tcpf2019.com. All right, guys, I'll talk to you in two weeks. Diabolical. Vengeance. Betrayal. Bad hair. Leaning. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make a date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training, but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. Creative power.